0: Well, the passage this morning is a very long story. It's three chapters in its entire telling. It's chapters 19, 20, and 21. And, and, and these ta- chapters contain a, frankly, what's a very gruesome tale. And I was hoping to look at the whole story in one sitting, but it just seemed a, a little much today today. And um, as I mentioned, it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I know people have places to go Get So, so I'm not going to detain you too long. So we kind of split the story in half. And like in the last couple chapters, there are actually no judges in these chapters. Really, the last five chapters of Judges is just sort of a, a picture of what the culture was like in those days. Sort of painting an image for us of what was going on in Israel. And I think it's important to note that we don't know when exactly, chronologically, these events happened. You may remember we talked about earlier in Judges that the book of Judges isn't written strictly chronologically. Some of the stories that take place in the books of Judges, they they overlap each other a little bit. You know, it will say that this judge reigned for 40 years, and this judge reigned for 30 years, and then the Philistines were in charge for so many years. But different things were happening in different places in Israel. So some of these things were overlapping, and in these last five chapters, they, they just sort of fit somewhere into the picture. And we're not sure exactly where. But just a warning as we get into this passage, it's a It's disturbing. Of all the disturbing things in the book of Judges, Jael driving a tent speg through the king's head, you know, all these different things. This is the most disturbing. So just be prepared as we get into this. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So as we saw last week, there's this phrase, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And that sort of sums up the situation. Pretty much everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. They did what was right in their eyes. Anarchy sort of reigned over the land. I joked last week that it was sort of like Portland, right? It was just anarchy, nobody, you know, people were doing whatever they wanted. And it was funny, but I spent some time this week in downtown Seattle. I I, I was actually down on 3rd and Pine, And I'm down there and there's literally, there's a lady out there and she's got a crack pipe and she's just smoking away and there's a cop right across the street and nobody's doing anything and literally, not to be gross, but I was stepping over human feces as I was walking down there. And you know, we're, the world is just crazy right now. There's no rule of law There's no repercussions if you break the law. People are just, they're doing whatever they want to do. And I believe that these these passages and judges, while they're disturbing and disgusting and ugly, I think they're important for us to look at and to discuss. Because, man, our culture has a lot of striking similarities to the book of Judges in this time. We're living in a land where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. We're living in a time when everyone is doing whatever they feel like doing. And frankly, I feel like it's causing the the demise of our culture, of our society, I mean, just look at our culture—how how godless it has become—and just look at the, Look at the things we see going on: little kids being encouraged to change their genders, and schools hiding it from the parents. That's insane. And all this stuff, that, I mean, the, the world is just cramming all this different stuff down our throats. And, and, and not only do we see this kind of stuff going on in the schools, you know, and you have drag queen hour in the libraries, but I was reading about this, these, these, I mean, I'm using the air quotes again as I use the word churches that are inviting drag queens in to share their ideology in these churches. Guys, that is lunacy. That is crazy. Right? The, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in his time, he says this. And I think that it was reflective of his time, but even more now. He says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I like the Living Bible. It says, they say that right is wrong and wrong is right, that black is white and white is black, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. That's pretty descriptive of our culture, isn't it? Calling right wrong and wrong right. That's very descriptive of our day. Again, here in the text, as we get into it, like we saw in the last couple chapters, remember we saw Micah's Levite, right? Here's another Levite who is sojourning. And again, sojourning, it seems like it's a nice way of saying that he was homeless. Right? He's wandering around. As many people were in that day. Remember that people had had been trying to settle in the land, but last week we saw that the whole tribe of Dan was basically homeless. They're wandering out trying to to find a homeland, and that's what's going on with this Levite here. And it says the Levite took for himself a concubine. Now, a concubine was sort of a quasi-wife. Right? I, I heard one pastor refer to them as servants with benefits. And, and that's really what it was. <clears throat> right? the, a concubine was sort of a servant that a man could sleep with. And, and sometimes they're referred to as wives, but they didn't have full legal standing as a wife. Right? They, and, and it sort of varied relationship to relationship, I think. But the, the concubine was bound to the husband, but she didn't have the, the full rights that went with being a wife. And because of that, if they had children together, the children might not receive a, a full portion of the inheritance in the family, and they might not be allowed to carry out the family name. But the husband was obligated to take care of the concubine. And so that's the situation here. And the Bible isn't condoning the situation. It's simply describing what the situation was. And it says in verse 2, his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So the Levite has a concubine that's unfaithful. Now, that word unfaithful it seems like the ESV, our translation here, it, it softens the language a little bit. The King James says that she played the whore against him. And it seems like that's a little more faithful to the original language, right? The word kind of insinuates that it was more than her just committing adultery, that she was actually engaging in prostitution. I remember in those days, they had a lot of pagan temples and they engaged in in ritualistic acts of prostitution. And it's very possible that that's what she was engaging in. But she leaves her husband and she goes to her dad's house and she stays there for four months. And I'll tell you something that I read in the news this morning. Kind of semi-related. I read this on Fox News. In California, loitering... With the intent to engage in prostitution, has been legalized. Now, the article talks about the bill's sponsor. He's a California state senator named Senator Weiner. You can't make this stuff up, can you? That's that was in the news. So, her husband arose. Verse three. And went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So the Levite at first, he's like, yeah, whatever. I'll see you later. And we'll see later on in the text that it doesn't seem like he really cared for this woman at all. But after four months, he decides that he wants his lady back. He's like, you know, she belongs to me. She's mine. So he takes a couple donkeys, he takes a servant, and he heads to the house of his father-in-law. And he gets there, and the girl brings him inside. Now, I want to camp here for just a second. This isn't implicit in the text, but I think it's important for us to point it out. Right? There had been unfaithfulness in this relationship. And by law, that relationship could have been dissolved because of the unfaithfulness. There could have been a divorce. But for whatever reason, the Levite, he seeks reconciliation. And we're going to see in a few minutes that this guy is a complete jerk. And I don't think that he sought reconciliation out of a position of love or wanting to show grace. He wasn't seeking reconciliation because that's the heart of God. I think he had his own purposes. But it does show us that even in the Old Testament, just because there was unfaithfulness didn't mean that there had to be a divorce. And I think that reconciliation is always the best option. Right? It's always best to seek reconciliation in in a damaged relationship. Right? And in the New Testament, Jesus talks about divorce being permittable in the cases of adultery. And Paul indicates that in cases of abandonment, divorce is acceptable. But, it certainly wasn't required, right? The best solution is reconciliation. It's grace. It's forgiveness. Now, we don't know the details of what's going on here, but I don't think that it was grace and love and a spirit of restoration that was going on. But we certainly see that these actions, as awful as they were, they don't mean that it had to end in divorce. Divorce. I just want to throw that out there. And it says the girl's father came with joy to meet them. The girl didn't seem especially happy. There's a knock on the door and she's like, oh, it's you. Right? But the dad was happy. And and we don't know why. Maybe it was that he just really liked his son-in-law. Maybe she was a lot of drama. Always wanted a new pair of shoes. We don't know. Likely, though, it's that there was a degree of shame being brought on the family. And so the dad wanted to restore his family's honor. And so, verse 4 through 10, I'm just going to kind of summarize it. But the Levite, he he was invited to stay around for a few days. And on the fourth day in verse 5, the guy gets up early and he's getting ready to head out. But the dad says, Hey, wait a little bit. Let's share a meal. I'll crack open a bottle of wine. And they sat around eating and drinking all day long. And they end up staying the night again. The fifth morning, the Levite gets up ready to go. And the dad says, hey, yeah, you're going to go, but let's have a meal together again. I'll crack open another bottle. And this starts to play out, but the Levite, you know, he's getting a little antsy. And so he says, okay, we got to go. It's time to go. Now, the father, again, he's like, well, just spend the night. I don't know, I don't know why this was going on, why the, the, the father was trying to get them to stay, but I think that the dad just didn't want to see his daughter go. I think that, that he loved her and that he was going to miss her, and it was hard for him to let her go. Remember, this was a... This was a rough world. And she's heading out into this world full of enemies. And he knew that when she left, there was a reasonable chance that he might never see her again. And I think he was just reticent to say goodbye. Yeah, stay another day. Why don't you stay one more day? But finally, the Levite says, no, we gotta go. He says, I'm out in verse 10. But the man would not spend the night he rose up and departed and arrived opposite of Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. So he arrives near Jabus. And Jabus is a, a city that at that time was still occupied by, by the people of the land. It wasn't a Jewish city yet. It would later become Jerusalem. And they were near Jabus, The day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, come now let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or at Ramah. So you see the scene here. As they're approaching Jabez, you know, the, the, the night's lit up a little bit. There's a glow of lanterns. It's getting late. And the servant says, Master, we're here. Let's, let's get a room for the night. And the master says, No. This is a, this is a Canaanite city. We don't, we don't want to spend the night with foreigners. We're going to push on to Gibeah, where the people of God dwell. We're going to stay among our own people. Let's get to Gibeah or Ramah. We'll be fine there. But what we're going to see is that his own people were at least as wicked as the foreigners were. And I think there's a lesson here, right? Sadly, oftentimes, again, the air quotes are coming out, right? The people of God are just as bad or worse than unbelievers. And on the other side of the coin, sometimes sometimes we get this idea that, that, that because we're Christians, we are, we're better than other people. That we're, we're morally superior. Man, it's true. They're a sinner that needs Jesus. Just like we are. And, and the reality is, unbelievers, people of other faiths, atheists, agnostics, they can be good moral people in that sense. I don't mean good in like a righteous right standing with God sense, but they can be people with good morals, right? I've met Muslims or atheists and Mormons, Mormons who are, who are good folks, folks who need Jesus, but good people, right? And this guy, he, as the story unfolds, he would have been far better off to have stayed with these unbelievers than to go to Gibeah where the, the people of God were. Verse 14, so they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. Verse 19. We have straw and feed for our donkeys. And with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and they ate and drank. So again, I want you to see the scene here. They roll into this town called Gibeah and they get there in the town square and nobody invited them into their home. Now the common practice of the day was you would go to the town square and it was sort of, I mean, I guess in our terms, it would have been like an Airbnb type thing, right? Right? You would get there and there weren't inns, there were hotels, but somebody would invite you into their home and then you would comp- compensate them for it. You would pay them whatever the going rate was. But they get there and nobody takes them in. And night's falling and they're just hanging out in the town square. And this old man from Ephraim, the very place that the Levite was from, he shows up and he says, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you here? yeah, we're just looking for a place to stay and, and nothing's working out. And the Levite says, look, I mean, we, we're, we're self-sufficient. We've got food for our donkeys. We've got everything we need. We just need a place to stay. And the old man says, well, whatever you do, do not spend the night in this town square. So he invites them into his home. They share a meal together. Right? They, again, they, they're eating, they're eating, They're drinking. It says in verse 22, they were making their hearts merry. And about that time, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. If you're familiar with the Bible, this probably reminds you of Genesis 18 and 19 a little bit. The events that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? The people here, they're, it says they're making merry, they're eating, they're drinking, they're having a good old time. And these worthless fellows, it said, surround the house and they're beating on the doors, right? and, and to be bold, to be, to be frank, what happens is the homosexual community shows up making noise, banging on the door, and they say, bring out the man who is visiting you so that we may know him, right? I mean, that's softening the language a little bit, but they wanted to bring out this Levite so this whole group could rape him. And the old man says, no, this is a vile thing that you want to do. But the men refuse to listen. And so the old man says, here's my little girl and this man's concubine. Take them and do what you want to them. Just leave this guy alone. Now, there are two things at play here. First, in that culture... Women did not have the same value as men. Women were often valued as as things, as possessions, as something that you could own and trade. And second, there was a sacred oath that a person took by inviting another person into their home. If you brought a guest, if you invited a guest into your home, you were committing yourself to their safety. You are committing your life to their well-being as long as they resided with you. And that was not an oath that was lightly broken. And obviously, neither of those things justify what happened. I'm just sort of explaining the mindset of the men involved in this. And I have to tell you, you know, I've taught judges several times in the past. But not in the last nine years. That's to say not since I've been a a father to little girls. And for those of you guys who are parents, those of you guys who are dads, you know that there's something different about being a girl daddy, isn't there? And I, you know, I I love my boys. I adore my boys. My three boys are older, you know, but my three boys, they're out climbing a tree and they fall and suck it up, get up. They fall down, go wash it off. Go spit on it and put some duct tape on it. You'll be fine. Right? But my little girls, man, I just, it breaks my heart when anything happens to them. And there's just a special bond with, I think, with daddies and their little girls. And, and, and it just, it kind of changes a man, I think. And reading through this passage this time around, it was, it was hard for me even to study and I'll confess I spent hours probably this week just kind of staring at my computer screen not sure where to go with this passage not sure how to how to unpack this right it's hard to it's hard to read and it's hard to teach through and I'm you know I I had a very unexpected emotional reaction studying this story this time around I look at this, and both of these men were willing to sacrifice the women in their lives. One of them willing to sacrifice his little daughter, and the other willing to sacrifice what basically amounted to his wife. One in order to save his reputation, the other in order to save his skin. And these guys, in my mind, are utterly... Deplorable characters. I mean, if I can be frank, they disgust me. Unwilling to stand up and to protect the vulnerable people in their lives. Ready to turn over their wives and their daughters to be raped rather than to stand up and to protect their own families. But the men would not listen to them, verse 25. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. So the Levite, he opens up the door and he shoves his concubine out and he slams the door. And it's very graphic. It says they raped her and abused her all night long until morning. As soon as the sun comes up, they let her go. And she makes her way back to the old man's house and she falls down and collapses on the porch. Gentlemen, if you're not angered, At the reading of this, there's something broken inside of you. Let me say this. As Christians, particularly as Christian men, I believe that we have a high calling. I believe that we are called to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. We are called to defend those who can't defend themselves. When we see or hear or witness injustices like this, we should be angry, right? Jesus, our role model, remember what he said? He says, man, you mess with one of my little ones, it'd be better if you just tied a giant rock around your neck and jumped into the ocean than to face what I'm going to do to you. Right? That's the God that we serve. That's the example that he sets before us. Jesus was loving. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was a man who hated injustice. And we saw that when he goes into the temple and he sees the people being taken advantage of and he goes over and he, and he starts kicking over tables and driving the money changers out. He was angry when people were taken advantage of, when they were abused, when they suffered. Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning. What does that indicate? He rose up. He had a good night's sleep. While all this is going on. And he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was this concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. So the Levite gets up, you know, washes the sleep out of his eyes, has a cup of coffee, is getting ready to head home. He opens the door, and there's his concubine laying on the porch, hand on the threshold, trying to get back into the house. And what does he do? Get up. Let's get going. Daylight's burning. Quit laying around. What a callous, cold-hearted, unloving man this was. And she doesn't respond. So he picks her up, tosses her on his donkey, and they head home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Now, Something I noticed just yesterday as I was reading through this, and I don't know for sure, but back in verse 28, you know, we read that, and even some of the translations make this assumption that the woman is dead. Well, we read it and kind of assume that. Some of the commentators assumed it. But it's not stated or even implied in the original language that the woman is dead at this point. Right? She was alive just previous to this as so she crawled up on the porch and nothing more has happened to her. And so we don't really know. Maybe she's dead on the porch. Maybe she died en route because he didn't give her medical treatment. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe he was so furious, she's still alive, and he gets out his machete. I mean, if I had to guess, I would guess that she died en route because it doesn't specify that she died there in the porch, but we don't know. But he takes her home. He chops her body into 12 pieces, writes a little note with each piece, and he FedExes it around Israel sends these little packages to the leaders of each tribe. What a deplorable man this is. And the nation is outraged at what happened, right? And at this point, I don't think it was outrage at what happened in Gibeah. They're outraged at this man. They didn't know the whole story yet. And they're outraged that he chopped up this lady and sent her her all over the place. Like, what is going on here? Verse, or chapter 20 verse 1 and we're only going to get a few verses into this then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah and the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly to the people of God 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword now the people of Benjamin these are the, the people that we're talking about here They heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. And they meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. That's an amazing retelling of the story, isn't it? This guy comes out looking like a victim instead of the scumbag that he is. He says, look, I got to Gibeah and the leaders of Gibeah. Now, that's not what it said earlier, was it? It said that some worthless fellows in the town, right? And so those worthless fellows may or may not have been the leaders of the town. I mean, the two aren't mutually exclusive, right? You can be a leader. You can be a political leader and a worthless fellow. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Um <laughs> So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they had committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So all the people, they come for battle from Dan to Beersheba. And they, that, as we talked about last week, that kind of means from north to south, the whole country. And they gathered together and presented themselves ready for battle. And all the people arose as one man, verse 8, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we'll take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred from a thousand, and a thousand from ten thousand, to bring provisions... For the people, and when they may, then they may come and repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the rest of the chapter outlines the battle between Israel and Benjamin, and we'll touch on that a little bit next week. But we're gonna close here, and you know, I I, I don't know what to say. This is a bizarre, dark passage. But a couple things to remember. This is the inspired word of God. And let me say it's it's descriptive, not prescriptive, right? It's simply telling us what happened, not telling us what to do. It's a record of what was going on in the land. And I want to go back. I want to pull out a couple of things. First, we saw this old man from Ephraim with this warped sense of honor and hospitality. He felt so duty-bound to protect this stranger that he was having over for dinner that he was willing to sacrifice his little girl. That's despicable. But there's a reason why the culture felt so strongly about hospitality. And, 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 and by no means should he have taken things that far. His, his understanding was warped and twisted. But hospitality in Scripture is a, a very important thing. Right? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think that's a reference back to Genesis 18 and 19. But throughout the scriptures, we see people inviting people in to share a meal together, to spend the night while traveling. And and I point that out to say this, that caring for people is an important part of our faith. Showing love and hospitality to strangers is a basic element of our faith. I mean, and and in hospitality, that's where friendships are formed. That's where fellowship takes place. And we, for whatever reason, our culture has become such an isolated society. We don't just hang out with people like we used to. Right, And, you know, you, I remember when, when I was a little kid, you could just go by somebody's house. You didn't have to call ahead. You didn't have to, you just show up and knock on the door. And they're excited to see you, right? And they'd bring out a plate of cookies, you know, and it was it was an exciting thing. Man, you can't just go by somebody's house now. You have to call them first. And before you call, you have to text and let them know that you're going to call. Man, I, I think it's, it's such a bummer. We lose so much value in our lives when we're not connecting with people, when we're not loving and being loved by people. So I do encourage you to, to be hospitable, to invite people into your home, share meals, throw parties for no reason, have people over for barbecues. Use it as an occasion to fellowship with believers, and to be a witness to unbelievers. Second thing we saw, and I mentioned this earlier, just about restoration in marriage. This guy, the Levite, was a terrible human being. Almost everything we know about him is a negative example for us, right? An example of what not to do. And even in this one thing that he does right, I think that his motives probably were selfish and wrong. But we do see something important, as we mentioned. Reconciliation should always be encouraged. Within the context of marriage, right, there are grounds for divorce, but it isn't required, right? Seeing a covenant relationship repaired and restored before the Lord, that's always preferable to divorce, right? And there are times I recognize when that might not be an option, but divorce should always be the last resort. But, but in, a, in, a, in a broader scope, I think in all of our relationships, reconciliation should be the goal. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and and entrusting to us, that's you and I, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a couple of weeks we're going to start first Corinthians and then I think we're going to get to second Corinthians and I anticipate a few sermons in those couple verses. That is a rich couple of verses. But just to summarize, Paul says, look, you guys were at war with God. You were God's enemies. Paul talks about that in Romans. He said, you were at enmity with God. But even then, through Christ, you have been reconciled to God. And he says, the next phase of that operation is that you have been called to a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. You've been given the message of reconciliation. He says, you guys, now your charge is to help other people become reconciled to God. I think that the side effect of that, the side effect of people having their lives made right with God is they start to repair the relationships in their lives as well, right? And you, this morning, you might have someone in your life that you have an issue with. You have an unresolved conflict. And you might find, you might find this morning that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, telling you that you need to deal with that. You need to be reconciled to that person. Your relationship or lack of relationship with that person might be the thing that is stopping them from coming to Christ. And your humility in seeking restoration in, in that relationship, that might be the witness that that person needs to draw them to the Lord or to draw them back to the Lord. Two more things real quick. I want to look at the negative examples we see. We see these guys casting out the daughter and the wife. I want to talk about protecting the innocent. Right? These two guys, I, as I said, I don't, I don't have the words. I lack the vocabulary to describe just how loathsome they are to me. In my mind, there is not a lower form of life than a man who doesn't stand up to protect his family, to protect defenseless women and children. There's nothing more disgusting to me than a man who would sacrifice a woman or a child to protect himself. James, in his letter to the church, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says, look, you want to be religious? You want to be right before God? He says, true religion is this, meeting the needs of widows and orphans, ministering to the needs of women and children who can't take care of themselves. Gentlemen, that's the kind of man that we are called to be you were called to be the kind of man that if you're driving down the freeway and you see a woman with a flat tire, you need to pull over and help her change her tire. If you're in a situation and you see a man abusing a woman, you better not say, oh, that's not my business if you're a Christian man because your business as a Christian man is to help protect those who are weaker than you. Lastly, we see, I guess I would call it the devaluation of women in this passage. We see here a very low value placed on women. And in many cultures of that day, and in many cultures today, women are sort of tier two citizens, right? That is not the message of scripture. In fact, the opposite is true. The church, the early church, the New Testament was on the cutting edge as far as women's rights go. And and just look for a minute around the world, right? And consider the rights and the value of women in places where gospel has made inroads versus places that it hasn't. Just just think about that. What countries have been deeply impacted by the gospel? And it's mostly the West versus countries that hasn't, Middle Eastern countries. And look at the different way that women are treated. Look what Paul tells the church in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And we read that, we're like, well, yeah, duh. Of course. But do you have any idea how cutting edge, how shocking that would have been to the original audience, how countercultural that was in that day. Paul, in one sentence here, he puts to death any concept of, of racial superiority, of socioeconomic superiority, of, of class superiority, or of any kind of superiority based on gender. He says, look, We are all equal at the cross. We are all human beings created in the image of God. And anyone who says differently does not understand the gospel. Anyone who says differently has a fundamental misunderstanding of the message of the cross. Now the church has made mistakes and it's implementation of this, but the Bible, the gospel is perfect in this. And when people understand and apply the message of the gospel, it can't help but to bring justice to the poor, equality to humanity, and love for everyone despite our differences. The text goes on, but I think this is a reasonable place to stop this morning. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy, dark passage. I pray you'd help us to just extract these grains of truth, these lessons that we can apply to our lives, Lord, and help us to walk them out. Help us to be the women men and women that, you, that you've called us to be, Lord. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.